morning, if you would, to the Gospel of John. Now, we have been slowly and steadily working our way through John's Gospel, which has been a rich delight and joy. Now, every time I return to this book, uh, I'm confronted with the beauty of Christ. There is such depth and richness here that we could and we should spend our lives learning of him, and we never reach the end of what we could learn. Now this morning, we're going, to re- we're going to return to John chapter 7. Now last time we were in this book, we worked through the first 36 verses of John 7. Our goal this morning, uh, we're going to finish this chapter, we're going to finish up John 7. Now as a quick reminder, a review to help us place our narrative contextually this morning, we find ourselves <coughs> in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. This feast was a seven-day celebration, starting on one Sabbath and ending on the next. And during that time, they dwelt in booths that they made from branches and palms of trees, and they would bring offerings of their harvest to God. Now, this feast was meant to remind them of how the people of Israel lived in booths during their time following the exodus from Egypt. It was a reminder to them of God's provision and his salvation during that time in Israel's history. And in the first 36 verses of John 7, Jesus goes to the feast and he declares that he is on the Father's mission. He is doing the Father's works. He is saying the Father's words. He has come from the Father and he's going to go back to the Father. He's equating himself with God and telling them that his words And his works are evidence that what he is saying is true. Now our narrative this morning is going to pick up at the end of this same feast. And as we'll see, Jesus is going to make another declaration that will divide the crowds even further about his identity. But as we prepare to enter this text this morning, I want to first consider the story of three teenage boys. Three teenage boys who lived on a small island in the Pacific called Tokelau. With the groups of small islands in this area, it is common for people to sail between the islands as a mode of transportation. It was also true and common for these three teenagers. And one day they set sail for another island, but shortly after leaving, they lost sight of the shore and they became disoriented. They didn't know which way would get them back home, and instead they drifted further and further away. They brought enough food and water for two days, but that was quickly gone. And after a month of being gone, their families back home assumed they were dead, holding a funeral service for them. Now imagine with me for a moment that you are those teenage boys, and you are are out on the ocean. You are hungry, but most of all, and most importantly, you are thirsty. All you want is something to drink. And as you are scorched by the sun, the sun is beating down on you. And with your parched throat, you look around your boat and you are surrounded by water. It looks pure. It looks clean. It it looks like water that you would drink back at home. And all you have to do is reach down. You take a scoop of that water with your hand and you could satisfy your thirst. And as those boys reached a month out on the ocean, that is what they started to do. They began to drink the water that surrounded them. And that is what happens commonly. It happens commonly with people who are stranded out in the ocean. They, they reach a point where they are so thirsty that they begin to drink ocean water. And what is the problem with that? 
Well, as we know, ocean water contains a large quantity of salt. And our bodies can handle salt, and we actually our bodies need a certain amount of it. The problem is that our bodies can only handle so much of it. And if we have too much, say by drinking salty ocean water, it actually makes you go to the bathroom more as your body tries to get rid of the extra salt. And in that process, it makes you thirstier, so you're actually being dehydrated at the same time as you're drinking this water. And the very substance that looks so enticing around you will actually kill you. It looks satisfying, but it only contains death. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you are like those teen boys out on the ocean drinking salt water. You are thirsty and you're satisfying your thirst in an ocean of death. It looks good. It may even taste good going down, but it only kills you. And as we come to the text this morning, Jesus, what he's going to do this morning, he's going to offer the only water that can truly satisfy. The only water that can quench the thirst of your soul. So with that in mind, let's take a look at our text this morning. I'm going to read John chapter 7, verses 37. I'm going to start with 37. I'm just going to read down through 39. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. If there's one main takeaway that I want to get from this morning, it's that Jesus is the only source of spiritual blessing. So Jesus is the only source of spiritual blessing. So with this text, as with any text, we need to do some background work in order, in order for us to fully understand its significance. We're going to spend some time setting the context for Jesus' words so that we can understand them rightly. And to do that, we've got to look at two areas of context. One, we have to look at some scriptural context, first of all, and secondarily, we're going to have to look at some cultural context. So first, we need some scriptural context because Jesus references Scripture. And he does that in verse 38 when he says, As the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the question is, what Old Testament Scripture, or what, or even more appropriately, what Old Testament themes in Scripture is Jesus referring to when he makes this statement? He's not quoting an exact verse from the Old Testament. But he's drawing on themes, big themes in the Old Testament, and bringing them all to bear in that moment. So to help us understand the imagery of Jesus' words, and how the people at that time would have understood them, we're going to look at three Old Testament prophets to help us understand this. We're going to look at Ezekiel, we're going to look at Zechariah, and we're going to look at Joel. So we're going to start with Ezekiel. And we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 47. Now Ezekiel, just as a reminder, is a prophet. He's in exile. It's before the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And God comes to Ezekiel and he gives him visions. He gives him visions not only of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, but also of the future restoration of the people of Israel. 
And in chapter 47, we're in a section of the book where God is showing Ezekiel different visions about what the future restoration will look like. And with that in mind, I'm going to read Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12. There's Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that could, I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region, goes down into the Arabah, and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Engelim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh there to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh, fresh fruit every month. Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So what Ezekiel sees is water flowing from underneath the temple out into the wilderness, and as it does so, it brings with it life. The river gets deeper as it goes on its journey. As we see on either side, there are signs of life. It's swarming creatures, fish, trees that bear fruit every month. This is an abundance of blessing that comes from this river that is flowing out from the temple. So what is God communicating to Ezekiel? He's communicating to him that during the age to come, there would be a flood of spiritual blessing. God shows Ezekiel a time of overwhelming spiritual blessing flowing from the temple, flowing from God, that will grow and bring with it unbelievable spiritual life. Now the people of Israel understood the imagery of this vision and as time went on after Ezekiel, they connected this vision with the promise of the coming Messiah or the Messianic age. They saw the time of the coming Messiah as one that will fulfill this vision of spiritual blessing and restoration. And it's pictured by water or by a river coming from the temple of God. So we have this connection. We can see this theme starting to grow between spiritual blessing and water. And now turn with me to Zechariah. To me to Zechariah. Chapter 14. Now, by the time we get to Zechariah, the people of Israel have returned from exile and they're back in Jerusalem. The temple had not been rebuilt yet, but it was in process. And during this time, Zechariah, he's encouraging the people to repent and renew their covenant with God. 
They're being harassed by their neighbors as they're trying to rebuild. And Zechariah brings comfort. And he does that by bringing them a glimpse of future messianic hope. And we see this particularly in Zechariah chapter 14. And I'm going to read verses 8 down through 19. And he says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hen- Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot where they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on horses, mules, camels, donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. And then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. And in this chapter, Zechariah, he pictures, he's picturing this coming day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is this day when God comes and he comes in judgment. And we see that even here, judgment against God's enemies and a restoration of the people of Israel. And beginning in verse 8, Zechariah pictures the coming blessing of the Lord, just as Ezekiel did, as living waters flowing out from Jerusalem. The coming restoration of the people of Israel on the day of the Lord would include spiritual blessing pictured by rivers of living water flowing out. Now this same imagery of blessing and water is seen in the rest of the vision as well. During this time, when God brings judgment on the other people of the land, he connects the giving of rain with coming to worship God in Jerusalem. Interestingly, during the Feast of Booths. And the nations that don't come during the feast will not receive rain. Those that do will. The spiritual blessing of God, pictured as water or as rain, is connected with the worship of God. God is the source of spiritual blessing in these visions. And once again, the Jews connected this vision, all wrapped up in their hope in the coming Messiah, that when Messiah came, he would fulfill this promise from God. And with these prophets, we begin to see this theme, this theme of water and of future spiritual blessing and of the coming Messiah. And even in this particular passage in Zechariah, he's connecting this with the Feast of Booze, which is the context for where we are in John chapter 7. Now understand, these, there are other passages that give this theme and this connection. We're just looking at a couple to give a sample and a flavor for this imagery that God gives throughout the Old Testament. 
There's one more prophet we need to look at, and then we're going to turn back to our text in John 7. And in that, we're going to turn to Joel, Joel chapter 2. In Joel, although not at the same time as Zechariah, he gives, once again, prophecies of the coming day of the Lord. That time when God would return and judge the nations and bring restoration to his people. And one particular portion of that promise pictures an outpouring of spiritual blessing. And we see it in verses 28 and 29 of Joel chapter 2. And he says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And the outpouring of spiritual blessing in Joel 2 is connected with this outpouring of the spirit of God. And with these prophecies and others, we connect water, rivers, and rain with spiritual blessing. The Jews understood there was a future day coming in which God would come and he would restore his people pouring out his spirit as of rivers of living water upon a dry and weary land, bringing spiritual blessing and restoration to all that it touched. Now with that in mind, with that imagery, you can imagine these people, they've been waiting for hundreds of years for the coming Messiah, and they've had this imagery and this picture in their mind, and then that brings us back to our text this morning in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, once again in verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. This is the last day of the feast of booze. And we've, we've looked at the scriptural context of what he's saying. Now let's talk for a moment about the cultural context. So if the nation of Israel, if they looked at the Old Testament and they were anticipating this coming, coming messianic age, How did they remind themselves of these future promises of this outpouring of spiritual blessing through the Spirit of God? And they did that. One of the ways they did that during the Feast of Booze is they had some daily rituals that they developed. One such ritual that the Jews performed during this feast it was called the water libation ceremony. And just for us to understand what's going on on this day, on each day of the feast, a golden flagon would be filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. And so while the people of Israel would come and they would watch this ceremony, the priest went around the altar with this water, and the choir temple, or the temple choir, would sing the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through 118. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male there would shake these willows and myrtle twigs that they had in their hand, and they'd raise a piece of fruit, and they'd cry out, Give thanks to the Lord. And then the water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice along with the daily drink offering of wine. So they would take water and they would take wine and they would pour it into these bowls that would pour out over the altar simultaneously and they would drain off through a pipe that would flow out from underneath the altar. And these ceremonies of the Feast of Booze were related in their thought to the Lord's provision of water in the desert, God's salvation or deliverance, and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last day. In doing this, they were referring symbolically to this messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. In this ceremonies, they were picturing salvation and the rivers of living water that would flow out from underneath the temple in Jerusalem, out into the land, bringing with it spiritual blessing. 
They were picturing the promise of the coming messianic age that we read about in Joel chapter 2. And if we can imagine, it's in the middle of this ceremony during this feast that our Lord and Savior stands up and makes His proclamation. To be clear, this is no accident. Jesus is making a clear proclamation to those around Him by His words and His timing. I know there was a lot of work to get there, but that's important work. So with this picture and this understanding in our mind, now let's read John 7, 37-39 again, and let's discover the richness of what Christ is saying. He says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Jews came to the Feast of Booze thirsty. They came with the heart's desire for God to come and usher in the Messianic age, to usher in this salvation that they longed for as water is poured over the altar. They were waiting for the Messiah and the promised spiritual blessing He would bring with the outpouring of the Spirit. They would even recite Isaiah 12.3 as part of the ceremony which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And it would be at this very moment, Jesus stands up in the midst of the ceremony, in the midst of this imagery, and loudly shouts and proclaims to them, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink. This is just as Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55.1 that Daniel read, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money. And without price. This isn't the first time that Jesus has made this kind of statement. He made the same kind of connection. He's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well back in John 4. And that scene should be familiar to us. Jesus is traveling with his disciples through Samaria. They stop outside a particular town. And Jesus sends his disciples into the town to go get food. And he stays by the well and rests. And a Samaritan woman comes out to draw water from the well, and, and he looks at her and he asks her for a drink, and she's shocked that he, a Jew, a man, would talk to her, a Samaritan woman, and ask her for water. And then he tells her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then down in verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water in the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus had promised the woman if she drank of the water that he provided, it would result in a spring of water welling up in her to eternal life. Jesus was offering the Samaritan woman at the well living water. And in our narrative this morning, he offers the same living water to these crowds, this crowd that is gathered at this feast. He did the same thing in John 6. In that narrative, Jesus fed the crowd, probably over 20,000 people, and he fed it with food. He multiplies fish and loaves on one day, and they come back to him the next day looking for breakfast. And Jesus tells them their need is not physical, but spiritual. 
He says in John 6, 53 through 58, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is the same idea of what Jesus is communicating in John 7. He says to them, if they are truly spiritually thirsty, they should come to Him and drink of Him. Drink deeply of Christ. Drink the water that He offers. Eat His flesh and drink His blood. Take in all of Him, for only in Him is there found eternal life. What does it mean, though, to drink of the water that Christ offers? Well, Jesus helps us out there. He makes a parallel statement to verse 37, right at the beginning of verse 38. After he calls all who are thirsty to drink of him, he says, whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in Jesus. A call to drink of Christ is a call to believe in him. A call to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood is a call to believe in him. A call to drink of the water that only he can provide is a call to believe in him is a call to faith. This is a call to place your faith or your trust in Jesus. It is a call to realize, like these Israelites who came to celebrate this feast, that they needed spiritual blessing that only God could provide. That they were spiritually thirsty with no way and no means to quench their own thirst. Jesus looks out on this lost crowd as they look forward to the coming spiritual blessing to the coming messianic age, and the Messiah stands up in their midst and commands them, come and drink of me, all you who are thirsty. To acknowledge their spiritual barrenness, to cry out to God for spiritual life that only He can provide. And as Jesus did on that day, I do this morning. For any who are here this morning have not drunk of the water, that only Jesus provide, I bid you, come. Come and understand that apart from Christ, you are spiritually dead. You're like a corpse floating in an ocean of salt water. You are lost apart from Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Place your faith, your hope, and your trust in the only one that can save you. Come to Christ and drink. All who are thirsty, drink of Christ, all who are thirsty, put your faith in Christ. However, Jesus' statement doesn't end there. He, he doesn't just call the crowds to come and drink of him. But he connects his call with the imagery, all that imagery that we discussed in the Old Testament. He says it in verse 38. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus gives the crowd a promise. He says that all who have placed their faith in Him, drinking of Him would receive the promised spiritual blessing of rivers of living water. And with this statement, Jesus is connecting Himself with the promise of the coming Messianic age. He is telling the crowds that they have come to this feast 
looking for the promised Messiah who would come and who would usher in this outpouring of spiritual blessing. They have come looking for salvation and it is fulfilled in Him. He is the Messiah. With His coming, all who place their faith in Him would receive the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Would experience the spiritual life and blessing that were promised in the Old Testament. He is the source of that spiritual blessing. All those who are thirsty can only access it through Him. He is saying to them, I am the fulfillment of all the ceremony. You're doing this ceremony, you've been doing it for hundreds of years. Year after year after year, and it's all fulfilled in Me. I am the only source of spiritual blessing. Come to Me and drink deeply. That leaves one lingering question, however, and that's a question of timing. What, when? When would all who place their trust in Christ experience this promised outpouring of spiritual blessing that was pictured and imaged in the Old Testament? And the Gospel writer, John, he helps us out here. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He gives some explanation in verse 39. He helps us to understand the chronology of events in redemptive history. One thing we have to remember is that Scripture is a progressive revelation. Our passage this morning is in the Gospels, which are really in this transitional period. Technically, during this time, it's still the Old Testament. Christ comes. He's fulfilling the Old Testament promises, and he will usher in the new age. But in John 7, Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't been buried, resurrected, or ascended to the Father. Those are events in redemptive history yet to come. So John, however, he's writing this decades after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He's actually writing it decades after the events recorded about in the early church in Acts. And he gives us some historical reference so we can understand the timing of what Jesus has just said in verse 38. And he says in verse 39, now this, so this is the gospel writer saying, now this he, Jesus, said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So notice the series of events laid out for us by John. First, Jesus was to be glorified. This is his death, burial, resurrection. After he's glorified, then the Spirit would be given as promised to all who believed in Jesus, placing their faith in him. So in verse 38... Jesus is referring to this future event in which the Holy Spirit would be poured out in a unique way upon all those who were saved. Understand, realize this is not talking about salvation itself. Salvation has always been the same throughout all of redemptive history. Salvation is a work of the Spirit in an individual's life to open their eyes to the truth of the promises of God, giving them the ability to place their faith in God. Jesus is referring to some specific future promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as I said, when he wrote this, all the other Gospels and Acts were already written. So his readers would have understood the connection that John was making. He's bringing this all together, and we can see this clearly if we turn to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, we have recorded for us the events of the day of Pentecost. Jesus is already resurrected. He's ascended to the Father and his followers are in Jerusalem and they're awaiting the promised Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes in a unique way, ushering in the church age and it's evidenced by miraculous signs and gifts and particularly on that day, the ability to speak in languages that they did not know. 
And in the midst of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that day, Peter stands up and gives a sermon. And he says to the crowds in verses 16 through 18, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And then he says down in verse 33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So in verse then in John 7, Verse 39, John is connecting the promises and the imagery of what the Feast of Booths was meant to symbolize to the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 at the establishment of the church with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The rivers of living water that that only God can provide as he pours out his Spirit with the coming of Messiah. Jesus is the only source of spiritual blessing. It is through him that we receive the Holy Spirit. It is through Him that we experience the outpouring of spiritual blessing through the promise of the Holy Spirit in us, coming out of us. If we think of the big picture context of what John has been building even in his Gospel, in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven, feast on me. In John 7, 1-36, Jesus says, I come from the Father, I'm going back to the Father, I'm on His, I'm on his mission, I speak His words, and I do his works. And then he says in this, I am the fulfillment of the messianic promise of spiritual blessing. Come, drink of me, and experience the only source of spiritual blessing, which is the Holy Spirit in you, coming out of you. And we are living in these times. We are living in the times promised by Jesus in these verses in which all who place their trust in Jesus have the Spirit in them flowing out of them in unique ways. Jesus actually promised that this time would be better than the time of his physical presence on earth. In John 14, verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Talking to his disciples here, he says, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus actually said it would be to our advantage for him to return to the Father because he would send the Holy Spirit in a unique and empowering way in the life of the believer as rivers of living water in them flowing out of them. An outpouring of spiritual blessing not experienced by others in redemptive history before this time. Now we oftentimes look back on the good old days. You know, sometime in the past, We look back on with fondness in a way that says that those times were better than now. When it comes to redemptive history, it just isn't true. In terms of redemptive history, we are living in times that are better than when Jesus was physically present walking around on the earth. We are living in the times in which the Holy Spirit is working in unique ways. They were unique that He didn't operate those ways in the Old Testament. We are experiencing unique spiritual blessing not seen before in redemptive history, as the Holy Spirit applies the work of redemption in our lives, and it's just be as a river, a river of living water in us, flowing out of us. As Christians, we have tasted the sweet, fresh water that only Jesus provides. We drank deeply of Christ when we were saved. 
It is those who have tasted this water. We oftentimes live our Christian lives like we've gone to the ocean and we've filled up our cup with salt water. Then we go out to the freshest mountain stream and we sit surrounded by the most satisfying water that we could imagine and we're sipping our cup of salt water. We're living in the promised last days in which the Holy Spirit has been given to us in unique and soul-satisfying ways, yet we act like that isn't true. We are searching for something else to satisfy us when only Jesus provides the satisfying drink. Jesus is the only source of spiritual blessing. Only through Jesus do we have this outpouring of spiritual blessing through the Holy Spirit. But how do we do that? How, what does it look like for believers to forget this reality, to forget the reality of what Jesus has given us through the Spirit? I think one way that looks is searching for spiritual blessing in sources other than Christ. It looks like searching for what has been promised us through the Spirit by other means. Now Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 22-23, he gave us a picture. What does it look like to have someone who's filled with the, who has the Spirit dwelling on the inside of them, coming out of them? What does that look like? Well, according to that, it looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. So anytime we search for something else to give us what we are promised in the Spirit, we are sipping from our glasses of salt water. God tells us in Galatians that that the Holy Spirit we receive at our salvation through our faith in Christ as the source of this entire list. However, if we look at this list, the world that we are surrounded by tells us that there are other means of attaining all of these things. Let's take one of these. Let's take one of these as an example. Let's look at joy. What does the world have to say about the way to attain joy? Well, first of all, the world equates happiness and joy. Webster defines joy as a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. And for the world, joy exists solely in the realm of feelings. And I read an article this week about ways to find joy in our everyday lives. It includes things like stop waiting to be happy, make self-care part of your routine, stop worrying, surround yourself with positive people, and find bliss in a bucket list. And I believe as Christians, we do the same sorts of things. We want and we strive for a feeling of happiness in our lives. So we make decisions about the work we do, the people we spend time with, the plans we make for the future, and they're all surround, centered around this pursuit of this feeling. And we can't feel that when we, can't, when we don't feel happy. We think, well, it's got to be in something else. So we turn and we re-pursue that something else instead. But is that how Scripture defines joy in its source? Well, Paul tells us what joy is in Philippians. And in Philippians, Paul is writing from his first imprisonment in Rome, and he tells the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How could Paul be so full of joy while he's sitting in prison? He says in, in Philippians 4.13, a, 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 a well-known passage, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, Paul understood that joy is not a feeling that's dependent upon the circumstances of life. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that is satisfied in Christ. Joy is a result of our relationship with Jesus. Joy is realizing no matter what happens in this life, I am just a pilgrim passing through. My citizenship is actually in heaven where one day I'm going to go and I'm going to be with my Savior. Joy is a result of realizing that Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. Better than any amount of money, any amount of possessions, any amount of physical health, or any kind of relationship. 
Joy comes through the realization that Jesus is the only source of spiritual blessing, and through Him, I can experience all that truly matters in this life. That is true joy, and that is independent of our circumstances. So anytime I find my satisfaction in pursuing and seeking joy in anything other than Christ through the Spirit, then I'm drinking of my cup of salt water. I'm surrounded by the pure, fresh water that God provides, but choose to drink the salt water that the world offers. And we can apply that same kind of thinking to any of the fruit of the Spirit, any on that list, or to any other promise of what it means to have the Holy Spirit at work in our lives as believers. Well, back in our passage, how does the crowd respond? How does the crowd respond to Jesus' words? Well, they respond the same way that we have seen consistently up to this point. They're divided, and so we read in, in verses 40 through 44 of John chapter 7. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. (coughs) But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Crowds are divided. Some think he's the promised prophet like Moses. Some think he's the Christ or he's the anointed one. The Pharisees had actually sent officers, temple guards, officers that go arrest Jesus, and they hear Jesus' words, and they don't know what to think. They're confused, and so they actually return to the Pharisees empty-handed. And as they come back to the Pharisees, the Pharisees confront them in verses 45 through 52. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law, that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. To be honest, I find this section just fascinating. First, they were all really clueless as to where Jesus was really born. They don't have a clue. And nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ever bother to correct them. He leaves them in their ignorance with regard to that fact. Second, however, is that once again, it seems out of the blue, we come across this old friend that we haven't seen since John chapter 3. It's Nicodemus. Nicodemus the Pharisee. And in John 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus with questions. He had seen what Jesus was doing. And he doesn't come saying that Jesus is Messiah, but he recognizes that Jesus must have been sent from God. And Jesus gives him the gospel. And then though in John 3, after he gives him the gospel, Nicodemus disappears from the scene, at least in our narrative. He's just gone. And then suddenly, the next time we see Nicodemus is right here in John chapter 7. And he suddenly shows up again. And this time he comes just short of defending Jesus. Pharisees want to have Jesus arrested, but Nicodemus stands up and says, does our our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? In other words, shouldn't we at least hear what the man has to say before we come to a judgment? Of course, the Pharisees shoot him down. 
But it does show that something is going on in his heart. God is at work in Nicodemus' life. And throughout the gospel, this gospel, John uses Nicodemus of, as an illustration of the truths that Christ is preaching. Christ has bid the crowds to come and drink of the waters of salvation only he can provide. And Nicodemus gives potentially some indication here that that might be happening. We don't know for sure at this point, but the gospel writer is going to make it really clear, abundantly clear, later in John. Well, after a month at sea, our lost teenage boys, like I said, they were so desperate for something to drink, they began to drink ocean water. With only days or perhaps hours left to live, they were rescued by a fishing boat. They had drifted over 500 miles from their home. And in our lost condition, we are like those boys in that boat. We're surrounded by water that looks satisfying, but it will only kill us. And then in our hopeless condition, as floating corpses in this sea of salt water, God reaches down and through his Son, by the power of the Spirit, gives us life-saving fresh water. Fresh water in that moment was the only thing that could save those boys. And for us this morning, the only water that can truly satisfy comes from Christ. Are you drinking the salt water provided by the world or have you you and do you continue to drink deeply of the fresh water that only Jesus provides? Just as the crowds and Pharisees and temple guards in John 7, you are confronted with the truth of Christ this morning. And as has been the case throughout this gospel, John brings more evidence of Jesus' claim to being God, more evidence to prove that Jesus is the only source of salvation. And every time he does so, we get another glimpse of the beauty and the glory and the wonder of our Savior. So the question is, how are you going to respond? This morning, are you going to respond as this crowd did with confusion? Are you going to respond by seeing a glimpse of the glory of Christ and walking away unchanged? Are you going to continue to go out into this world with your cup of salt water, sipping on a drink that brings no spiritual blessing? Or are you going to run to Christ, the only source of spiritual blessing? Are you going to run to Christ, the only one in which you can experience true joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, thankfulness, gentleness, and self-control? If you know Christ here this morning, then you have the promised Holy Spirit inside of you. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. A source of living water inside of you, coming out of you. Only Jesus provides the soul-satisfying water. He is the only source of spiritual blessing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this picture of Christ that you've given us this morning. God, throughout the whole Old Testament, you, you painted all these pictures and all these images He gave them promises of this coming Messiah and what it would look like when the Messiah came. He gave this picture of this outpouring of spiritual blessing by the Spirit of God that would flow out to this people. And then Jesus comes. And in this moment, in this feast, with all this symbolism, all the imagery, everything that was intended to point forward to Messiah and the Messiah stands up and proclaims I am the fulfillment of all of this come to me all who are thirsty and drink so God I pray this morning for any here who don't know you who haven't come 
and drank deeply of you. God, would you open their eyes to the awareness of their sin, their brokenness, their barrenness, their hopelessness without you, God. Would you open your eyes to the sweetness of Christ this morning? And would you, by the power of your Spirit, come into them and give them ability to repent and put their faith in you, God? that there would be a a wellspring of water in them that would come up in eternal life, a river of living water in them flowing out of them, God. Do that work this morning that only you can do. And for us who know you this morning, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who have tasted of the sweet and fresh waters of salvation, oh God, would we not then turn back to the waters of death as we live our Christian life, would we keep coming back and drinking deeply of you, that our souls would be satisfied in you, and that we would be walking rivers of living water as the Spirit inside of us flows out to all of those around us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.